So how does the church of God retain its place in the world when the world doesn't want it? How does the church of God retain its place in the world when the world doesn't want it? For many, the church no longer has a relevant place in our society. People want faith to be a private thing, relegated to the home, out of the workplace, out of politics, out of our schools, because they don't see it as necessary anymore. And there are many, things, many reasons as to why this is. Perhaps one of the main reasons is that people believe they don't need religion to be good. They don't need Christianity to be a good person or to know how to be a good person. Have you ever heard people say that to you before? I don't need faith to be a good person or to have morals. My friends who aren't Christians truly believe they are really good people who do good and they don't need a faith to subscribe to to be good. Now I think that is partly true. I have non-Christian friends who are very good to me, who have been there for me in times where I've been very sad and upset, and they've helped me through those difficult times in my life. They have done immense good for me. And since shows like The War and Waste, businesses have begun, have begun to think more ethically about their product lines, about their wastage, providing pro programs even to clean up the world around them or to clean up the ocean as well. Uh, there are countless NGOs out there who seek to do good in our world who don't even subscribe to a faith or have any kind of religious affiliation. And even Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said that evil people can love each other. That, that unbelievers, Gentiles, he says, can do good. So do we need Christianity, the church in the world, for people to be able to do nice things, good things? It's a legitimate question, and it's difficult to answer. Perhaps it's the wrong question to ask to begin with, because obvious, our world can do good things. People can help each other out and not believe in Jesus. The question, though, therefore, we should be asking is, what kind of good is the church supposed to do that our world can't? What kind of good is the church supposed to do that our world can't? Can't because the good that we have to do is so much more than live a moral life, to do nice things to people, to do good things to others, all important things that we should do and embrace. But when Paul talks in his letters about Christians doing good works, it's a specific and technical term, something given especially to Christians to do, and this is what we're going to look at here this morning as we come to our last chapter in Titus and bring us all to a close. We've been exploring how Paul wants Titus to bring order to the church by appointing church leaders who will order the church around and towards the grace of God and his message in Jesus Christ and help people to pursue upright and godly living, to order their freedom not towards their sinful desires but towards what is good and what God has planned for them. And now we come to explore what the ordered church looks like in a sinful, disordered world. How do we live as the ordered people of God, ordered towards the grace of God, in a world that is otherwise disordered and in chaos? So firstly, what is the good we are to do? If you look at verse 1, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. For Christians who submit to the highest authority, Jesus, the question might arise, well, what place does earthly authorities have over me? What place does Caesar have over me if I submit to Jesus? What place does, does ScoMo have over me if I submit to Christ? 
unless others would think otherwise, Paul tells Titus to remind the people that no, they are to be submissive to their rulers and to those in authority on earth. Now, if submission to these earthly authorities means compromising on our faith, then we must follow Jesus instead. But otherwise, if we can follow Jesus and follow the rulers of this land, then we ought to do so. But Paul further qualifies this kind of submission to authority, not only as obedience to those in the, who are in authority, but being ready to do what is good. Their submission was to be more than just simply reactive, obeying the laws that come to be in the land, but rather it was to be proactive in nature. The Cretan Christians were to have a proactive life in the public space, actively submitting to the law and seeking to do good and always being ready at every single moment to do good in the world around them. Their Christian faith, rather than separating themselves from the world around them, their faith actually thrust them back in. Not so they could be like the world, but in it to do good. They were not to be detached from the world they lived in. Rather, they were to be engaged with the people around them, the world around them, so they could be ready in active submission to do whatever was good. Now, if there ever was a sign today in our world that says, don't talk to me, I'm detaching from the world around me, it's wearing headphones. If you ever go on a morning commute to work or if you're in the street somewhere, you see people have these little white earbuds in or headphones in, it tells people around them that I'm detaching from the world for a moment. I'm just in my own world, looking, listening to my own musical podcasts or watching my own TV shows, and please don't disrupt me. Don't talk to me. It's the universal sign that says, I don't want to be just disrupted right now. And the moment they get taken out, it's the sign that says to the world around them, okay, I'm ready to be back and to engage with the world around me. People who have these things in their, in their ears, they, are, they can not notice anything that happens outside the world around them. There could be a house on fire as the bus drives past, and they would have no idea. They're totally detached from the world around them. Now, I wear headphones all the time, okay? It's not a bad thing to listen to music or podcasts as you're going to work. But I do want to say, this does reveal something about the culture we live in, and that our time is precious to us. And we don't want to easily give it to others, especially when it inconveniences us or doesn't suit us at all. And so we would rather detach ourselves from each other and not actually be involved in other people's lives so that we can do what we want to do. So our world and our life is not disrupted by other people's needs and wants. But Paul calls Christians in Crete and us today to always be prepared to do whatever is good. Engage with the people around us. And that's hard to do because the kicker here is that Paul says we must be prepared to do what is good even to people who are hard to do good to. If you look at verse 2, where do good to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always to be gentle toward everyone. It's easy to do good to those who are themselves good or those people who are being victims, oppressed by others, to do good to them, to help them. But when Paul further mentions how we are to act, he anticipates the temptation we all have to not act kindly, to be angry towards others, and to be frustrated by those people who aren't actually that good in our eyes. 
people who we want to argue with or speak ill of. These people are the ones that we struggle to want to do good towards. And Paul is saying Christians are called to do good to them as well. And here in this verse, he's calling Christians to restrain their natural inclination, to say the worst about people, to lash out in anger when someone does something to us, to be mean-spirited when something doesn't go our way, and instead to be self-controlled, gentle, peaceable, considerate. This is the difference between the world's version of good and the Christian version of good. It's easy for people to love good people. It's much harder to love bad people, which we all are. Paul says to be engaged with the community around us and submissive to the authority of the day, we must seek to do good towards each other, even those who are hard to do good towards. That neighbour who constantly complains to you about the noise, about where you park, the length of your grass. That boss who says one thing to one employee and to another thing, another employee. That friend who seems so self-focused, ignorant of your own needs and others. That driver who can't indicate to save themselves. <laughs> These people in my life, every day, who cut in on the coffee line who take your car park at Freshwater Beach. That happened to me the other day. It is very hard not to let your anger out, to explode in some sense. Now I didn't explode this person, but I can tell you what, I was not honourable in the way I looked at him. I was not honourable at all. Paul calls us to something far better. He says we must seek to do good, even to those people who are hard to do good to. The temptation, of course, is to let loose, to get angry, to speak ill of people, to gossip behind their back. But we are not to be like that. We are to use our freedom not to engage in sinful desires that are so natural, but rather to engage in pursuing what is good. God has saved us so that we could do so. Now, it's not that Christians should be naive and stoic, you know, never ever getting angry and never seeking to challenge other people and their intentions, and their words. Rather, it is desiring to, when we come to a divisive situation, to be the peacemaker. When someone is being really, really unkind of someone, to rebuke them, but gently. It's when people are so frustrating towards you, instead of just lashing out at them, you take a breather, and you seek to actually try and understand why they are frustrated, and challenge them. The good Christians are to do is to show another way, a better way indeed. The good we do in being submissive, engaged in our community in love and kindness, even when it's hard, it points to something far greater that we as Christians have experienced, we as a church have experienced, that our world has not experienced. And that is the why. You see, the reason why we behave like this towards those who necessarily are hard to love is because we have experienced something they have not. And that's where we come to the next point here. Why is it that we seek to do good? Why is it that we seek to be patient with those, to love those, to care for those, to be gentle towards those people who are hard in our world, to be gentle and loving towards? Why? Well, Paul gives two answers here. He says the first answer is that because we were once like that, once like what our world is today. And second, because we experienced the same goodness in Jesus. So firstly, because we were once like what our world is today, if you look at verse 3, it says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, 
deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. And so after addressing how Christians ought to live in this world, he then says, for this is what you used to be like. The reason you should live like this is because you used to be like the world you're in right now. They are to be obedient and submissive to authorities because, Jesus, because before Jesus, they weren't obedient. They were disobedient. They were foolish. They had to be ready to do whatever is good because before Jesus, all they could do was follow their sinful desires, enslaved by them, and live selfish lives. They had to slander no one, speak honorably, peaceably, be considerate and gentle, but because before Jesus, they could not restrain their natural inclination to be angry, live in envy, hating each other as they themselves were being hated. Paul saying, you've got to remember who you once were who you used to be. Remember how devastating and how destructive that life was. Have you ever known someone or know someone at the moment who when you look at them, the trajectory of their life, you can see they're heading towards destruction. You can see that they're just enslaved by all these desires that are unhelpful, unfruitful, leading them away from what is good. They're angry, they're envious of all their friends and speak evil of them. They desire evil. And you think if something doesn't change, it's not going to end well. So many people live along this trajectory at some point. They either, it's not obvious at all or it's very obvious, but they're all on that same trajectory. And Paul is making the point, remember, when you also live at some point along that destructive trajectory. Remember, why? Because the world presently does. But what's fascinating is that if it was the world talking, the world would say, separate yourself, judge, and feel good that you're not along that trajectory anymore. But Paul says, don't judge, don't cut yourself off from other people in the world. Don't think of yourself as better. Rather, be obedient. Be submissive to the authority of the day. Seek and be ready to do whatever is good, both private and publicly. Speak honorably about people behind their back. Be gentle. Be considerate. Be peaceable. That's the response we ought to have in this world. Why? Because that is what we have experienced from God himself and Jesus Christ in response to our destructive, sinful lifestyle. God loved us and God was gentle and kind and considerate instead of judgmental and destructive towards us. And so we come to the second answer. Because we have experienced that same goodness in Jesus. You look at verse 4. But when the kindness and love of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy he saved us. Through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope 
of eternal life. The reason why we can and should seek to live good lives, to be engaged with the world around us, to do good and speak honorably, live peaceable, be gentle towards others in all kinds of difficult situations because when the kindness and love of God appeared, he saved us. There are so many things going on in this verse. Let me unpack this for a moment. You see, the temporal nature of this verse, when it says when, shows that Paul is talking about a moment in time, a moment in history that God appeared to us. He's talking about Jesus himself. Jesus Christ became mad and he, man, and he appeared to us as God's loving kindness to save us from our sin. Now that word in, in, in the in the uh, verses it says love and kindness, but in the Greek it's just one word. It's philanthropia. What does that sound like to you? Philanthropy. It's where we get our modern word philanthropy. And it's, the Greek word itself is actually made up of two different words. Philo, which is love, and anthropos, which is man. And so the word means to have a deep affection and loving concern for humanity. A loving kindness towards a humanity in desperate need. In God's loving kindness, he sent Jesus to save us from our broken, disordered, sinful desires so that we would be free from our guilt and shame of our sin and have our freedom properly ordered towards what is good. We didn't earn this. We couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't earn God's loving kindness. As he says there, it was by God's mercy, an act of his grace. And this moment in history is, is coupled with the work of the Spirit in the present. And that's why the loving kindness of God, which appeared 2,000 years ago in history, has the power to transform us today. If you look at verse 5, again, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The work of Jesus is applied to us in the present by the power of the Holy Spirit as it washes us and makes us new. Therefore, we can experience the appearance of God's loving kindness in our own life as if we experienced it 2,000 years ago. That has come before us so that therefore we can know that we are saved from our sin, its guilt and shame, and then made new and washed Saved, not just simply so we escape punishment, but saved so we can be taken off this trajectory towards destruction and head towards a trajectory of life and goodness and hope. To live the kind of life we have in verses 1 and 2. Showing others as we seek to be gentle and kind and peaceable, the loving kindness of God. And that life as we live out that life, washed and made new by the Spirit, we do so for the purpose of showing the hope we have, the hope we have for eternal life. There's, a, there's something about the life that we live now in the present that is described in verse 1 and 2 that would be, that's a sign, a constant sign of what is to come and what we've experienced, the grace of God, His loving kindness, a sign that we're not only saved, but a sign of what will come for all people who put their faith in Jesus. And then Paul ends this section telling Titus to stress these things, to stress where you've been, to stress what you are now. Why? So that the, the, those who are trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable 
for everyone. The motivation to do good work or that God has prepared for us to do is found in remembering who we once were and remembering who we are now because of his loving kindness in Jesus so that we can therefore then show that loving kindness to the world around us. That good work, this good work is profitable for everyone and excellent because people get a taste of what God is like, what he has come to do, where we are heading for all those who trust in him. And the appearance of God's loving kindness in Jesus reveals a, a deeper good work, one that not only saves us but puts us back on this trajectory. It's more than simply uh, living a moral and upright life. It's more than simply doing good things to, to people. This love, this good work seeks to reorient us towards what we're always supposed to be, living for Jesus in this world, expressing and overflowing his loving kindness towards other people, showing the, the how God transforms people in their life. I just want to pause here for a moment and say that when you might have read that list in verse 3, you might have thought, yeah, that, that's me. I'm a Christian, but that's me. I'm angry all the time. I'm jealous of all my friends and what they have. And it makes me think evil thoughts towards them or I gossip about them behind their back. I'm someone who hates other people and I know they hate me too. I'm someone so enslaved to my sinful desires, I don't know if there's any forgiveness for me. So how can I call myself a Christian when I struggle with these things or all these things? The answer to that is in verse 8. Paul wants Titus to stress these things, the grace and loving kindness of God, so that those who trust in God will devote themselves to doing what is good. What are you trusting in God for? If you read verse seven, verses 4 to 7, you'll know. You're trusting him to save you. You're trusting in him to, to, to make his spirit work in your life so you are transformed made new again. You're trusting in his mercy and his grace is enough for you. His loving kindness. If there's anyone here this morning who feels the weight of their sin, who feels guilty and broken, take your sin before the God who has appeared before us as loving kindness, as someone who has a deep and affectionate concern for you, whose purpose in his appearance 2,000 years ago and continual appearance by his spirit to us today is to make sure you can know that there is hope and life in him, that he has come to save you from your sin, to take your sin to him, trust in him, and therefore devote yourself to doing good. Devote yourself, living in his mercy and grace, to show others the loving kindness that you yourself have experienced as well. We may live in a world that doesn't think it needs us, but only the church has experienced God's loving kindness. Our world hasn't. Our world needs it, though. And God has chosen his people to show forth that loving kindness to others. And so, therefore, when you go to work, when you are at home with your family, your children or your grandchildren, when you go to the cafe, when you're driving in your car, slander no one who frustrates you. Be the peacemaker when division arises. Be gentle 
when someone annoys you. Be submissive to authority, even if it's difficult and hard and an inconvenience at times. Be engaged with the people in your life and the world around you because you have experienced something that this world has, hasn't experienced yet. You've experienced the loving kindness of your Creator and your God in Jesus Christ who has saved you and enabled you to live a godly life where your freedom is ordered around His goodness and love. Where you're on a trajectory towards life and hope. A trajectory our world so desperately needs to be on themselves. So continue to trust God and devote yourself to what is good. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much that you appear to us as loving kindness in history, in your Son. And your Son died for us and rose again that we might have life and hope in him. And that by your Spirit you apply this to us now so that we can experience your loving kindness and the transformed life to therefore show that love to others. And so we pray, Lord, as we live out our life Monday through to Saturday, even today as well, we pray that you'd help us to show that love to others, to our children, to our grandchildren, to each other as a church, and to those we come in contact with in life in general. Would everything we do point towards the, the incredible kindness you have shown towards us, that we are to live a life more than just simply doing good things and nice things to nice people, but rather we are to do to, to good to those who perhaps in other people's eyes don't deserve it, to show that you are kind and loving to the least of these, including us. And so, Father, we pray you'd help us to live such a life for your glory. Amen.